When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the final episode of Containers, an audio documentary about global trade, technology, and the work that goes into moving stuff around the world. I'm your host, Alexis Madrigal. We've come a long way together on this podcast. We started with the advent of containerization. From there, we traced this new system for handling cargo. We've learned how it's transformed everything, from how you get your toothbrush to the very structure of cities. We visited ships and considered the impact of trade policy, and last week, we met with longshoremen who lived through the automation of the dock work they built careers doing. And today, we're going to look at the future of automation in all the different places where the goods of global trade get moved around. In ports, on ships, on trucks and warehouses. What's next? The future is... More or less. Robots. Like, way more robots and way more sophisticated robots. Are they going to take all the jobs? Will they become friendly little whirring work pets? How humans and robots are going to come together is the topic of this last episode. Think about the simplest example, shipping. Rolls-Royce, which is a leader in designing ship engines and navigation systems, have already announced a big push into self-steering autonomous ships. But even if things just stayed on their present course without a radical change, the amount of human in the system has been dropping for decades. Bigger ships with smaller crews means that the labor required to transport a ton of cargo across the ocean is a small fraction of what it would have been even 20 years ago. The biggest ships carry up to 18 times the cargo of a 1970s ship, and they have a smaller crew. Sometimes there's only 15 people on board. Whether or not we call this kind of thing automation, the human element, or the way a company might phrase it, the labor cost of shipping, keeps getting smaller and smaller. On the shore side, things are much more complicated. There are now four shipping terminals that are at least partially automated in the United States, one each in Los Angeles, Long Beach, Norfolk, and Newark. At the facility in Los Angeles, both the operator, a company called Traypack, and the ILWU, the union, agree that automation reduces longshore work by 40 to 50 percent. This trailblazing automation project is the most technologically advanced container terminal on the west coast of the United States. For what it's worth, I asked the local ILWU leadership many times to talk with me on the record about this stuff, but only managed to get several polite no's. The terminal operators themselves are touchy about this topic, too. Both sides are itchy about taping their hands for future contract negotiations. But luckily, we can piece together the basics of how the Los Angeles automated terminal works with some help 
from a promotional video. A human operator brings over a box with a regular crane from the ship onto the shore. Then, fully automated shuttle carriers transport the containers from the wharf to the waterside transfer area. These shuttles are not like Google's self-driving cars, which have their own cameras and laser sensors to navigate the human world. Instead, the dock itself has magnets embedded in it, which simplify the task of positioning the automated transport carriers. There's a sort of map built right into the terminal that only the machines can use. From the waterside transfer area, the containers are collected by electrically powered, rail-mounted automated stacking cranes, known as ASCs, and placed into a These 39 huge machines drop the boxes into big stacks of containers, positioned perpendicular to the shore. Then when a truck arrives in need of a particular box, the crane gets that box ready. The trucker backs up to the stack and then literally gets out and goes and stands in a booth. The booth sends a signal to the waiting ASC, letting it know that it is now safe to deliver the container to the truck. While this new automated terminal is as sophisticated as they come, the technology underpinning port automation is not actually new. And that's important for understanding how the hype around robots works. The first such terminal went in in Rotterdam in 1990. As the rest of the world is going nuts for self-driving cars, automation of the nation's ports has proceeded very slowly and seems neither inevitable nor imminent. Why? The short answer is, it costs so damn much. Like, each terminal that automates has to spend maybe $500 million to implement the robotic system. And really, from a productivity perspective, there isn't much of an improvement over using people. If you look at a list of the most productive ports in the world, it's dominated by the huge ports of Asia, which simply deploy lots of longshore labor. If this has been the experience of the last 25 years, why even bother trying to eliminate the jobs that are left? Because after all, as we've already heard, so much automation already came with containerization. Most of the jobs that existed in 1965 are already gone. One consequence of that situation is that a relatively tiny number of longshoremen can shut down the imports and exports along an entire coast. The docks are a choke point. And so labor on the docks has a lot of leverage, which is one reason that the longshoremen make good money. And that's where the robots come back in. For terminal owners, there's one huge advantage to machines. They don't go on strike. In an unusually honest article in the industry bible, the Journal of Commerce, a port planner said that the reason to automate is that it results in less exposure to interruption. And by interruption, they mean labor action. I mention all this detail because when we say the world is coming down to humans versus robots, that elides the fact that it's often humans versus humans using robots as a tool. It's not just ports themselves that are automating similar and even more advanced technologies are coming to trucking and warehousing with fascinating consequences and possibilities. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the next big things in automation. Containers is brought to you by Flexport. Flexport is a freight forwarding company built around modern technology. They help over 2,500 companies run better global supply chains. If you want an insider's perspective on the shipping industry, check out their blog on flexport.com. To understand what's happening in port automation, we need to understand the broader context of, well, really just of robots. 
So we're going to dock the boats, we're going to go ashore, and we're going to look at the vehicles that take containers all around the country, the trucks and the truckers who drive them. There's 1.7 million truckers in the U.S., and if you look across all other driving jobs, so taxis, bus drivers, delivery, uh, there's another 1.7 million jobs. This is Natalie Foster, a fellow with New America California and at the Aspen Institute. She focuses her studies on the future of work. Now, there are big technology companies on a massive arms race to figure out not only how you build and deploy, but how, but now how you actually move into um, regulating self-driving trucks. So it's, uh, it's a very scary proposition to imagine overnight 1.7 million drivers out of business. Truck driver is the number one job in 29 states. And not just Idaho and Wyoming, but California, Texas, Pennsylvania, like big states. And why are there so many truck drivers in America now relative to other professions? Well, the big losses in other career paths have come from automation, jobs getting made obsolete, and globalization, jobs getting offshored. And up until now, truck driving jobs have been insulated from the changes that have affected factories or call centers or the ports themselves. In fact, truckers do well when there's more stuff moving around longer distances. So the big changes in logistics and trade have kept demand for trucking high. Critics will say that as technology has entered the workforce, uh, we've always figured out new ways to create jobs, right? So the sort of classic example at the turn of the uh, century as we moved from the farms into the factories, we couldn't have imagined any other jobs besides the jobs that existed on the farms. But uh, we now know that that is, of course, a very small percentage of, of the American workforce. And maybe, but that's just hard to take on faith. I mean, trucking is the kind of decent job that exists in low-income, less urban areas. And if truckers lose that work, it's not immediately clear what else they might do. Foster told me, though, that it's probably not as simple as millions of jobs disappearing overnight. Trucking is a complex profession. And I wanted to learn more specifically about how truck driving works as a job. Like, are the people in the cabs of trucks actually worried about self-driving vehicles? In, like, the work I've done with the industry and, like, reading their publications and stuff, I think they're not as, like, concerned about this happening in, like, five years or ten years even as a lot of people are. And part of that, I think, is because there's a lot more to truck driving than driving. Karen Levy is an associate professor of information science at Cornell. She's been studying how truckers work and the technologies that aid and surveil them for the better part of a decade. She broke it down like this. Sure, truckers drive, but there's all this other stuff that they do, too. If you're driving like a flatbed, you know, you have to like be able to secure the load, right? Like that's a huge deal. You don't want stuff falling off the back, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of maintenance that has to happen. These are like really complicated pieces of equipment where you need somebody who like knows how to fix stuff, right? There are all kinds of like weird contingencies on the road with weather and all that. And some of that is addressable technologically, but some of it like you actually just need a person. That's made Levy skeptical that technology is simply going to put people out of work. So it could mean that you just, like, reorganize your labor force in some way so that it can still do those parts and not the driving. But the idea that, like, suddenly three and a half pe million people are going to be out of work totally is, like, I think too simple. And I think people in the industry recognize that. There are real problems, though, with the current model of trucking cracks in the system that don't result from an overabundance of enthusiasm by people simply excited about the gee whiz possibility of self-driving trucks. Basically... Being a trucker in the just-in-time logistics world we have today is really, really hard. 
To make enough money, drivers often have to stay on the road for too long, regardless of what their bodies might want or need. Fatigue is kind of a push factor. Like, we need something to address the problem of, like, basically, like, using humans to do this job has become in many ways unsustainable, right? If we're going to be realistic about how much work they're doing, like, the fact that they're not paid enough for the work they're doing, all that kind of stuff. Another way to think about the automation of goods being delivered over the roads might be that the task of driving across highways is fairly easy to automate, but the job of trucker is not. And that's something that's true across the board. Here's Foster again. 49% of tasks that we do now, not singular jobs, but tasks across all kinds of work, could be automated using off-the-shelf technology. Which means that you could, which means, you know, a huge shift in what sorts of jobs, how they get packaged up and how they uh, get hired. So let's try to imagine how that shift could go. Automation, we've learned on this show, is usually about a new system of work. In the case of trucking, the point of the system of work would be to move goods over the highways on wheeled vehicles. And one of the most intriguing possibilities is what I'd call the land port. I first heard it described by Alex Davies, the transportation editor for Wired magazine. Basically, self-driving trucks go bombing along the freeways, then they pull off into a land port. Truck drivers will become like tugboat pilots. Their job is to, once the truck pulls off the highway into a designated trucking, autonomous trucking zone, the human comes in, climbs into the cab, and does the rest of the driving. And meanwhile, trucks on the highway don't have anybody in them at all. It's it totally seems nuts, but it's not that economically it makes total sense. The technology wouldn't be that hard to implement compared to what we have now. So the easy-to-automate task of highway driving would be matched to a new set of in-city tasks. Every trucker would become like a drayage driver, moving things in and out of a port. And I'd be willing to bet that the jobs would be dispatched a lot more like Uber than anything else. To extend the vision of this system of work a little... Perhaps truck stops would become large-scale mechanic shops. Self-driving trucks would detect that they had problems and pull in to be tended to by their humans. You end up with this strange-sounding future in which fleets of robotic carriers call for on-demand help from a labor pool of humans who can deal with social or mechanical contingencies that are, for now, beyond the reach of robotic control. Right now, in the nation's warehouses fascinating cyborg systems like this have already developed. There are tons of robots and warehouses working in concert with humans already. For example, Amazon snatched up a company called Kiva Systems back in 2012 for $775 million. With the Kiva mobile fulfillment system, the operators stand still, and products, cases, items, or orders come to them. Pallets, cases, and orders are stored on inventory pods that are picked up and moved by a fleet of mobile robotic drive units. The distribution center is now completely dynamic, self-organizing, and self-adaptive. The orange Kiva robots sit low to the ground. They drive up underneath what looks like a shelf and screw themselves into it. Then they drive it over to the human who's picking the stuff to box it up or whatever and return to the warehouse floor. Over time, the little pods move oft-picked products to easy-to-access locations and rare purchases out of the way. Different members of the fleet go plug themselves in or request maintenance or what have you, and the humans all stand around the edges of the warehouse using their hands to pick products. 
Because, as it turns out, our hands are very, very difficult to mimic. They're versatile and strong, but also gentle. So that's nice. But there are other possible ways of structuring warehouse work that use different technology. Kiva robots use a system of tags built into the building, kind of like the container carriers at that automated terminal in Los Angeles we talked about. But a startup company called Fetch Robotics works quite differently. Its little robots are like tiny self-driving cars, with considerably greater decision-making power baked into them. I decided to go visit Fetch Robotics down in San Jose. They're located out on one of those tree-lined boulevards of squat office parks which seem to dominate the southern stretches of Silicon Valley. The companies that surround their offices have names that were clearly created playing technology word, Mad Libs, Silitronics, Amax Technologies, Electromax, Advanced Probe. I walk in and we walk across a classic startup open floor plan office. Engineers tapping away, the sound of robotic arms filtering in from a workshop. As we sit in a conference room, I spy a little robot that looks like a really tall Roomba with a basket attached to it, rambling around behind CEO Melanie Wise. She says that warehouses need robots like hers, basically because not enough people want to work there anymore. Uh, If you look specifically at the United States, there's a growing problem. A lot of people don't like to talk about it like this because it it belies the jobs problem. Um, The fact is, is that there are 600,000 jobs that are going unfilled in the United States, and that gap is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, The turnover rate for any manufacturing or warehouse job is about 25%. And so... There's a need for automation because people aren't showing up to do the work. Um, and so that's where we got interested in the space, why we got interested in the space, why we looked at this is an interesting space to build automation for. So what they focus on is helping humans get things from point A to point B within a warehouse or factory so the companies can make more efficient use of the people that they do have. For uh, any person within a warehouse or a manufacturing facility, their work process breaks down into tasks, and one major part of that that work process, that one task, is walking from a pack area to a picking area. And that typically can be a three- to five-minute walk, and they do it maybe five times an hour, and next thing you know, 25 minutes of their 60 minutes is walking. So the picking area is what you'd think of as a warehouse, like the racks of stuff. And these can be vast spaces in the millions of square feet. And the packing area is where stuff gets shipped out. So the most basic deployment of their system, they just put robots in the picking area, and humans grab stuff off shelves and then tell the robot to deliver it to the packing area. And that alone lets people get 20 to 30% more work done per hour. They call their core product, that little robot, Freight. Freight is a relatively small, circular-ish robot. Um... It's it's uh, about 14 inches tall, um, and it's uh, 22 inches wide, um, or long, yeah, and 21 inches wide, I think. Um, but the and it's white and gray, and looks friendly. And what it is basically is a little tiny self-driving vehicle. Frit is an autonomous unit, so it has an onboard computer, and it has all the sensors necessary to work in an environment. So it has a 25-meter planar laser scanner, so um, it can see 25 meters out. 
And then uh, we also have a time of flight 3D camera that allows us to see the volume in front of the robot. So they take this little machine, which can look around and make decisions about what path to take, and they drop one into a huge facility. The way our robot actually works is when we bring a robot to a facility, we make a map of that facility using its laser. Um, And once it has that map, that map is distributed to all the other robots. And then we can tell the robot where to go within that map. Um, And it basically uses the features in the environment, the shelves, uh, poles, any anything that you would see in a warehouse um, to reference where it's going and how to get there. And it does it in a collision-free fashion. They send the robots high-level tasks over a wireless network, and the robots coordinate on how to do that work. A lot of what they do is just following people around. And so they've had to train the robots to recognize human legs. They do this by feeding them lots of data, by which I mean images of legs. We have a data set of a lot of different people's legs, um, very thin legs to very big legs to robot or legs with uh, like really reflective slacks to legs with jeggings, you know, things like that. And all of that data is fed into something that gives us uh, a leg classifier that basically says this is a leg or this is not a leg. The reason they need all that data is that as with self-driving trucks or cars, there are always going to be these unusual things that happen. On highways, maybe it's a person or debris where those things shouldn't be. Or an example that Google famously gave a couple years ago, one of their cars once encountered a person in a wheelchair chasing a wild turkey down the street. Obviously, their cars had never seen that exact situation before. Engineers call these circumstances edge cases, and they're why Google's self-driving cars or Uber's self-driving trucks are not autonomously driving the roads today. For most workaday situations... The technology performs great, but they need more training data to teach the cars as many edge cases as possible. And the same is true for freight, as they found out taking the bot to trade conferences. So the way our robot docks with the the autonomous charging dock is it actually looks for a shape of a charge dock. Um, And it's a relatively unique shape, very unique. But when we're at conferences... There's typically all these curtains everywhere for the different booths and things like that. And the rob- the dock was near a set of curtains. And the robot started trying to like dock with the curtains over and over and over again. And we were like, huh, I think we need to fix that. <laughs> we drive over to their training warehouse. And I watch as these robots simulate warehouse work. They pack free weights, like the stuff you'd bench with, on top of them to test their durability under various loads. The most fun thing is to try to get in their way because the robots try to find paths around you. So if I were to, like, step out in front of that robot, what would happen? It would stop like this. And now it's going to wait. And it'll keep trying. Kind of the mega happy version of human-machine labor symbiosis, like these friendly little helpers following our jeggings around, helping us work better. And I actually think a lot of automation will, in fact, work like this. But like so many of the big topics that we've addressed on this show, trade, technology, generally, automation narrowly, there'll be slices of the population that will lose their jobs. Some companies will use the technologies to drive down human wages or break unions or make work conditions worse. So it's just a reality of what happens when you deploy this technology 
in the context of so much power being concentrated in companies and so little among workers. It's January 2017. After a long 2016, it's time for Port Director Chris Lytle's annual address to the maritime industry of Oakland. The event's being held in Jack London Square at Scott Seafood, that kind of classic place where they serve sourdough bread in a basket with a little gold-wrapped pads of butter. People from all the terminals and major shipping lines and retailers and exporters and port commissioners are gathered around big round tables. There's the din, a certain kind of sweaty din of the trade show. If I could have your attention. 2016 was a banner year for the port. The steady and rarely excitable Lytle gave a rousing review of all the challenges that the port had met. One of the terminal operators had filed for bankruptcy. There was a labor dispute hangover. The global market for shipping is miserable. There's more pressure from East Coast ports, and yet, still, improbably, Oakland had a good year. Handled 30% of our business. Guess what? The numbers are in. It's an all-time record now for our cargo handled uh, at the Port of Oakland. So thank you. Even Oakland's mayor, Libby Schaff, showed up for the annual event. I just want to say how happy I am to be here every time I get to be with the Port family. I know that many of you know that a decade ago I served as the Director of Public Affairs for this organization, and I cannot say how much respect and fondness I have for all of the many people. And, you know, you all are still here. It's been 10 years. What's up? And the port is still there. They're all still out there, despite all the other changes in Oakland and the Bay and the world. The ships and the sailors, the captains and the longshoremen, the target shoppers and the warehouse workers, the truckers and the activists. I remember the bus driver took me out of the main terminal there on one of my last reporting days. Her name was Greta, and her father had been a longshoreman too. And I was telling her about this podcast, and she said exactly what I've been thinking for the last eight months, and what is certainly the right sentence to end this series. Interesting one. Yeah, yeah. I the mean, documentary it's, it's radio, because it's a whole it's different, yeah. it's a whole different world when you come in here. You're right, Greta. That is going to be awesome. And I love it. getting emotional here at the end that's it for this episode and unbelievably crazily emotionally this series if you want to keep up with what's going on with my reporting i'm starting back writing at the atlantic magazine in may and working on a book about all this stuff that we've been talking about in the podcast if you know something or you know someone who knows something get in touch Sign up for my newsletter. It's called 5IT, and you'll get regular updates on everything, as well as lots of links to technology stories. Big, big thank you to the director of audio at Fusion, Mondana Mofidi, for all she's done to get this series on the internet. Containers has been produced and edited by the sagacious Jonathan Hirsch. It's totally crazy, but we have yet to meet each other, even though I am now pretty sure that he's actually a long-lost brother. If you'd like to witness our first meeting, come on down to the Containers Closing Party. It's Thursday, April 27th at 7 p.m. at Oakland Hot Plate. That's 348 13th Street in downtown Oakland. There's an Eventbrite invitation pinned to my Twitter page, so RSVP 
all listeners are welcome. Jonathan and I are going to talk about the show a little, and then we'll just kind of hang out. I also have a whole series of thank yous for so many people uh, who helped make this series in one way or another. Um, some of them know and some of them don't. To the 99% Invisible crew who inspired me to do audio at all, thank you to Roman, thanks to Avery, thanks to Sam, to Anna Sussman from Snap Judgment, another Oakland-based podcast who inspired me to make this thing much better, to the Journal of Commerce's Bill Mongaluzzo, one of the best names in journalism, who also clearly knows everything about West Coast ports, to Rachel Slade for her reporting on the Alfaro, to Lou Olkowski for her reporting on Southern California ports, if you need more waterfront, you need that in your life, go check out her podcast, Cargo Land. To Liam O'Donohue for his podcast, East Bay Yesterday. If you need more Oakland stories, he's got you. To the Port of Oakland's Chris Lytle, John Driscoll, Mike Zampa, Kyle Burnell, and Marilyn Sandifer, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise. To Brian Nelson, Michael Vodder, and Frank Silva for the generous donation of their knowledge and their skills in media making. Uh, Thank you. Thanks also to Ryan Peterson at Flexport for making this crazy project financially viable. And, and last but not least, all my local people, thank you to Gabby Miller and Ruth Gabrizis and Jamal Jellyfish and the rest of the Oakland crew, to Robin Sloan for being my sounding board and media inventor model, and of course, to Sarah Rich, my wife, for being the best possible first listener while also putting up with all the late nights and busted schedules. Thank you. That's it, it's really over now.